You're listening to a DM podcast. Hi everyone and welcome to the new series of Heroes and Howlers. It's me, Mikey Robbins, and my mate Paul Wilson. Hi everybody. Look, we're both still a couple of history tragics, but this season it's not just us doing the heavy lifting. That's right, Mikey. This season we've got special guests picking out their very own heroes. And howlers. <laughs> yeah, we're still on the lookout for those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. And we're still uncovering the cock-ups, those moments of madness that have made the world what it is today. But now we've got backup. And together, we'll be turning history back to front and back again. Hey folks, Paulie here. Having a great time on Season 9. Great having all these new guests on. We're just going to have a break for a couple of weeks. So we're going to go back and hopefully you'll enjoy some of our classic episodes from the past few seasons. And then we'll be back with some new guests to round out the year. G'day folks, and today we've got one of the key naval battles in history, but we've also got one of the greatest military cock-ups, haven't we, Mikey? Yes, but this is a complete hour, and it has major consequences for us today. And to talk about this battle, Mikey, you're taking us to one of the farthest-flung corners of the globe, aren't you? It's not the Wild West. No, mate, it's the Wild East, East Asia, to be precise. Now, we've already touched upon Japan's expansion, now the Chinese Empire ebbed and flowed, but, but yeah, the other big player, Russia, is one that we haven't really touched on. And in many ways, today's story is about how Russia manages to expand itself into the single largest territory on the planet. And how that ground to a spectacular halt. OK, we're talking Russian expansion, particularly eastward. Are we talking Peter the Great? Yes, we're going to talk about Peter, but we need to go back a bit further than that, first of all, Mikey. We, back as far as the 16th century and Ivan the Terrible. Yeah, we don't talk about him enough, mate, do we? <laughs> yeah, and actually, mate, we might even have to go back a bit further than that, because remember that Viking Varangian Guard yeah, episode yeah, we yeah. had about how they came from Scandinavia and came through this region almost a thousand years previously? Well, that's because back then there wasn't really any Russia to speak of at all. In fact, the wasn't really a city of Moscow. The main player in the region back in those days was Kiev, in the princes of Kiev. But I want to pick up today's story in the 14th century, Mikey, because that's when Moscow starts to slowly grow. So by the time Ivan the Terrible, Ivan the Fourth, does come along in 1533, Moscow has grown into a fully-fledged duchy. Now, 1533, now at the same time in the rest of Europe, we've got the Reformation and Martin Luther going on. That's right. And culturally, Moscow is very much looking westward to those parts of Europe. But religiously, Russia and its people are looking south. Because remember, we talked about Russia being part of the Orthodox Church. So rather than Rome, they're looking at Constantinople. Okay, that's culturally. But today we're talking about expansion. That's right. And in terms of gaining new territory, the East is Russia's only real option. Sure, there is some push into Poland, Sweden, Ukraine. But it's to the East that Ivan is casting his eyes. And it's in the East where he has the most opportunity. Because, of course, the Mongol Empire, by now, that's long fractured. It's become a whole patchwork of carnates and tribes. And Ivan the Terrible, he realises he can attack its closest neighbours, the Golden Horde, and push down through their territory, through those great river systems we talked about with the Don and the Volga, south down towards the Caucasus, but more importantly, eastwards towards and over the Ural Mountains. And he's successful at this? 
Very much so, Mikey. Yeah, he takes the Carnates of Kazan. He takes Astrakhan, which, of course, gives him access to the Caspian. In fact, in 1547, Ivan's so successful, he drops his title as Duke of Muscovy, and he now proclaims himself the Tsar of the whole of Russia. So that opens the door on the Siberia, mate. So for the next 200 years, is, is it a gradual encroachment, a sort of nebulous push east? And, and when do we get to Peter the Great? <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Peter the Great and, of course, his successor, Catherine the Great. We're now in the 17th and the 18th century. And as you say, they're pushing across the continent. They're going through Siberia. And, of course, in many ways, it's quite easy for them because most of the territory is just, <laughs> just snow and forest, isn't it? There's not really, apart from a few indigenous tribes, very many people to stop them. But that shouldn't take away from their achievements, Mikey, because they really do take Russia to a new level. Back in the West, as I said, they've pushed into Poland and Sweden, the Ukraine. They've also gone down into Central Asia, the Black Sea, Crimea, even the Caucasus proper. But as we said at the top of the show, it's Russia's eastward expansion that's going to prove the real game changer, and it's eastwards where all their most vigorous efforts are focused. Did they even make it as far as Alaska and like the west coast of modern day Canada? Not just Canada, mate. They made it as far as the Oregon coast and California. But that's when, and you know, we're talking mid 19th century now, that's when it grinds to a halt. Why? Did they they run out of land? Hang on, was it the Pacific? Well, it's not so much the Pacific, Mikey, but yes, you're right. It is about geography because, of course, we said in that earlier episode, didn't we, geography dictates history in many ways. And so although they'd found the pushies pretty straightforward when crossing what is essentially a a long belt of steplands which pretty much run in a straight line right across Asia, despite this success, attempts to make inroads a bit further to the south had pretty much stalled. You see, once you get below the steps, you're now entering those swathes of hostile, inhospitable Deserts, yeah, that whole band going across from the Caspian right through to what is now Beijing. Yeah, you've got the Karakum Desert, you've got the Kizilkum, you've got the Gobi, Taklamakan. And of course, in terms of infrastructure, if you're trying to build supply lines for an army on the march, if you need to feed them, if you need to house and support the campaigning Russian army, as soon as you start trying to make your way through these enormous deserts, the infrastructure is just not there. So what you're saying, Paul, is by the mid-19th century, Russian expansion has come to a standstill. Precisely, Mikey. Central Asia, with all the uh, the modern-day stands, Xinjiang province in China, Mongolia, these are now forming a natural, impenetrable barrier. And that's a conundrum Russia is really going to have to solve if it wants to maximise its newfound position in East Asia and exploit the enormous potential that the region has to offer. Hi again, folks. So today we're delving into how the East was won, how rival powers attempted to muscle their way into Northeast Asia, and how ultimately these manoeuvrings would come to a crunch at the Battle of Tsushima. Two days in 1905 that changed the world. But we've got to talk first about 19th century Europe. Now, the Industrial Revolution is changing everything. It's enabling the Europeans to charge all over the world. That's right, Mikey. So the Europeans, they've taken over all of Africa. They're pushing into Asia. The Brits are in India. The French are in Indochina. And Russia, it's gone across the steppes and is now eyeing up what other bits of territory it might be able to get its hands on, be that in Central Asia, Mongolia. And what in those days was the old region of Manchuria to the north of China. 
Right, and if that's the case, the only people standing in their way, the only empire strong enough to put a stop to the Russians, would be the Chinese. Correct. And by this stage, China's been controlled by the Qing dynasty, the guys who overthrew the Ming. That's right, the Qing have been in charge for the last couple of hundred years, and what's critical about the Qing is they actually started out as the regional powerhouse in Manchuria, so for them, any Russian threat is almost doubly significant. But, right. But by the 1850s, though, mate, the, the Qing are looking a little bit wobbly. There's been the Taiping Rebellion, the Opium Wars against Great Britain. Yeah, and you've got the wars against France and Vietnam. And it's at this point that Russia really sees its chance. You see, it may have hit the Pacific coast at Vladivostok, but it really wants to push down, down towards the Korean border and down to an area of the world that's known as the Liaodong Peninsula in Manchuria. And why do they want to go there, mate? Well, you see, Vladivostok's all well and good, but it's only a summer port, Mikey. During the winter, the waters freeze up. So Russia knows that if it's really going to succeed, it needs to get hold of a warm water port. Ah, there's a reoccurring theme in history. Russia looking for a warm water port. Right, and the port they're looking for goes by the name of Port Arthur. (laughs) Not the Port Arthur down in Tasmania, but as I said, on this Liaodong Peninsula in northern Manchuria. But the problem with that is, any attack on Manchuria is an attack on China. And even if the Qing emperors are weak, Russia is still going to need every regiment it can muster. And the problem with that is supply lines. I think I can see where you're going with this, mate. And the answer's going to be, uh... The answer, of course, is the railway. And I always thought railways were the Brits' answer to everything. Well, that's it. The Brits are very successfully using the railway to consolidate their hold over their empire... And it doesn't take long for the powers that be in Moscow to sit up and take notice. Now, you're talking at this stage the 1890s, Mikey, and the Russian czars Alexander II, Alexander III. And so they order their generals to drop everything back home and start building railway networks out east. In fact, one of the champions of this was the young Prince Nicholas, who would later become Nicholas II, the Tsar. That's right. And the final outcome, of course, is that incredible piece of engineering that's the Trans-Siberian Railway. A game changer if ever there was one. Which is why back in Europe, all the commentators believe it's now just a question of time before European sophistication and modern technology can bulldoze its way across the entire continent and steamroller all the countries that lie before it. Except, mate, in 1868 in Japan, there's been a little thing called the Meiji Restoration. Well, that's right. We talked about that in the Samurai episode, didn't we, with the end of the Shogun? And this has brought about a seismic shift in Japan. It's no longer looking inward. It's promoting education, there's modernisation, but also there's mass industrialisation and a rise in nationalism. And on the back of that, Japan's looking at its own outward expansion. Well, that's right. And this is when Japan tries to steal a march on Russia, doesn't it? Because Japan too recognises China's weakness and recognises the opportunity for it too to have a say in the outcome. And basically that brings about the first Sino-Japanese war, which Japan wins so decisively. Yeah, that China-Japan war, look, it may not have lasted long, but it had serious repercussions, right, mate? Because the upshot at the end of 1894 is the war treaty of Shimonoseki. Now that gives Japan bits of Manchuria, but most importantly the Russian port, Port Arthur. Yes, the warm water docks of Port Arthur. They also, by the way, get Taiwan and the Pescadores Islands, but it's these warm water docks that are going to hold the key. 
And this ticks off the Russians no end. But here's the thing. They seriously underestimate the new Japan. I mean, they have quickly built a large and well-equipped standing army. But not just that, mate. In 1885, this is important, they hire a French Navy engineer, a guy called Emile Bertin. Now, he sets about a massive expansion of the Navy, not just that, but construction domestically and also to buying ships from overseas. So by 1904, Japan not only has the fourth largest fleet in the world, but it's the newest, the fastest, and most importantly, the best armed. Yes, and that's when the big shift comes in, doesn't it? You've now got Japan, as you say, looking outwards rather than looking inwards. It's emboldened. Russia is still emboldened. It seems an opportunity to encroach into Chinese territory. Yet at the same time, as these two new powers come closer and closer together, they're also feeling threatened. Yes, mate, but there's also another point we need to remember, and that is Russian arrogance. And the Russian general's repugnant racist views belittling Japanese military prowess. That's right, Mikey. Even though Japan won that earlier war in 1894, the Russians have seriously underestimated the progress that's been going on in Japan. And they think that if it does go as far as military engagement, they're just going to win hands down. And they are very quickly going to be proven wrong. We're now in what's known as the Russo-Japanese War. It's April 1904 and it's the first battle, the Battle of Yalu River. And that's an important river, isn't it, Mikey? Because that's on the Korean border and it's actually the same river that Japan had had the fight with China about previously. And much to the Russian surprise, and I've got to say, much to a lot of the Western powers' surprise, the Japanese win. In fact, it's the first ever defeat of a Western power by an Asian army in the modern world. And the Japanese, they've got wind in their sails, and they power on into Manchuria. So much so that by January the 2nd in 1905, the Japanese are laying siege to Port Arthur. Right, because we have to point out here that despite the earlier 1894 treaty, Russia never actually withdrew its claim to Port Arthur, did it? In fact, it actually strengthened its hold on the town by sending in more troops, which is one of the reasons for this new war in 1904-1905. Right. And that is a bloody battle, isn't it, mate? It's awful. It's a horrible battle, mate. It's heavily defended by a Russian garrison. Also, too, it's one of the first uses of what we'd call a modern machine gun. The, the loss of life is catastrophic. And also, too, it's not helped by ineptitude and Russian infighting at the highest levels. Right, so now the Japanese have got the upper hand and the Russian cock-ups are in full swing. Which brings us to our tipping point, the naval battle of Tsushima. Two days in May 1905 and a Russian cock-up. And mate, it doesn't start well. You've got the Russian admiral, Admiral Rostovensky, mm -hmm. and he takes the fleet. Okay. And where does he take the fleet from, mate? Uh, the f uh, from Vladivostok? No, he lives from Latvia. Latvia? Yeah, mate, the army might be in the east, but the navy's back in the west. <laughs> so they leave from Latvia, and it's not long to their fighting. In fact, on the 15th of October, 1904... Yeah. Well, you know the Dogger Bank just off the coast of England? Sure. Yeah, well, the Russian fleet comes across a small fleet of British trawlers. Mm -hmm. Now, for some reason... The Russians are convinced that these British fishing boats are actually Japanese torpedo boats. <laughs> Mate, they open fire. There's, right. There are considerable civilian casualties. It almost prompts a war with Great Britain. 
<laughs> so they almost skip it before they get started. Yes, mate. In fact, there are intense negotiations between the Russians and the British, but they do sail on. Okay, but that still leaves them a few thousand miles short. Where do they head next? Well, they managed to get themselves around the Cape of Good Hope without too much bother. But then towards the end of March, as they're approaching Madagascar, the news comes through that the bloody battle for Port Arthur we were talking about... Yeah. Well, the siege is finally over. The Russian garrison has surrendered and the whole town has fallen. So Admiral Wozniakowski, he's too late. Not just that, mate. He's also worried he's going to get the blame. He orders the fleet to turn around and sail back to the Baltic. But how's that going to help? Well, fortunately for him, he's not the only captain on board. And word soon comes through that another set of Russian ships have set off, but this time from the Med. Now, the Russian command reckoned if the second squadron cut their way down through the Suez Canal, mm-hmm. the two fleets can unite, push it up to this Liaodong Peninsula where all the action is, and save the day. Ah, got it. So, full steam ahead? Yes, mate. By May, they're steaming up the Chinese coast, heading towards Vladivostok. And by the 27th, they've amassed an armada, and they're about to head through the Tsushima Strait. By the way you're telling it, I've got a feeling they're not going to make it through. No, mate, they're not. The Japanese fleet, led by Admiral Togo Hitachiro, are lying in wait. Now, they're lying in wait on the South Korean coast, just off the city of Busan. Now, by this stage, you've got to remember the Russians had already travelled some 33,000 kilometres. Over the next two days... Two-thirds of the Russian fleet was sunk. Mm-hmm. That's 21 ships, including six battleships. Right. A further six ships are captured, mm-hmm. four limped into Vladivostok, and six fled to neutral ports. Here's the thing. 4,380 Russians were killed. 5,917 were captured. The Japanese losses, mate? Three torpedo boats sunk, mm-hmm. 117 dead. Now, it's an interesting battle. It's the first battle in which radio telegraph really played a decisive role. Right. Now, the Russians, they were using a German system. You've heard of the company, Telefunken. Okay. Well, they had Telefunkens in their ships. But here's the thing. They weren't properly trained to use them, and Ah. they didn't know how to maintain them. Right. Now, remember how I said before the Japanese had been developing their navy? Yeah. They developed their own radio telegraph system, and it worked Perfectly. Ah. Look, some people say it's like the start of radio electronic warfare, mm-hmm. and it was pivotal in the battle. But what's more important, too, was a change in tactics. The Russians were still clinging to the old tactic of close quarter fighting, mm. of, of drawing the enemy in. But the Japanese ships, though, were much faster and had much larger guns, which meant the Japanese could fire from a distance, a much bigger distance, and at the end of the day, that's why the Japanese won. And this is a huge turning point in naval warfare. In fact, the British military expert, George Clark, the first Baron Sydenham of Combe, goes on to be both the governor of Victoria here in Australia and later of Bombay. Well, he wrote in 1906, the Battle of Tsushima is by far the greatest and most important naval event since Trafalgar. All right, folks, so that's the Battle of Tsushima, and that brings an end to the Russian-Japanese War. It may have been a brief war, very brief, but as Mikey said, it does mark a seismic shift in the axes of world power. So what exactly are the upshots, Mike? Well, for a start, Teddy Roosevelt is brought in to negotiate the peace, the Treaty of Portsmouth. And if you ask Teddy, the most important thing about that was he actually got the Nobel Prize. (laughs) Right, but the real significance is Russia, isn't it? It has to withdraw, it has to give up all its claims to Manchuria, And that allows Japan to occupy and, in fact, annex not just parts of Manchuria, but the whole Korean peninsula. And, mate, 
back in Russia, there are massive and fundamental ramifications. Russia has plunged into chaos. Mm. There is a massive loss of confidence. There's the 1905 revolution. Sure. The Romanovs never recover. In fact, Lenin would later say that the 1905 uprising was a dress rehearsal for the revolution of 1917. And in Japan, of course, you know, they just go from strength to strength. In World War One, yeah, they manage to side with the Allies, and that allows them to really start their Pacific expansion, doesn't it? Things in Korea get really brutal. They really start to exploit the Korean Peninsula, make it almost a colony. And at the same time, they invade and occupy more and more parts of China. They cement their place, I mean, quite terrifyingly, at the top table. And as we all know by now, they go on to build one of the strongest armies and navies in the world. Which, of course, leads to World War II. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media, Twitter, Facebook, Insta, whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at the rest is hist. The rest is hist, and you'll find all that in the show notes. And wherever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment on whichever platform you happen to use. It's always good to get your feedback. Yes, keep it all coming, lots of fun. And lots of maps. <laughs> and lots of new guests to look forward to. Paulie, we've got guests galore, each with their very own hero and howler. <laughs>